Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Can I please have your attention? Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Um, I'm going to do this intro real fast because I'm very excited about today's guest. He is, in some ways, in the podcasting world, he's probably my biggest inspiration. I listened to so many archival episodes of his podcast when I was working on my book, Suicide of the West, that I felt obliged to uh, thank him in the acknowledgments because um, it really, it, it, it opened up an enormous number of paths for me. And an enormous number of my guests on this podcast in the past have been inspired by the fact that I heard, first heard them on his podcast. If you can't guess by now who the guest is... Um, then you don't know me very well, but it's Russ Roberts. He's the host of Econ Talk. Um, he's also the president of Shalem College now in Jerusalem. And he's also at the, a fellow or scholar at the Stanford Institute, which... Uh, Hoover is, Institution. I'm sorry, the Hoover Institution at Stanford, at Stanford um, which is too far away for AI to crush in softball, so it's okay. And, um, and he's got a new book uh, that's a... F- Fascinating. I'm, I'm, I've been diving into it um, on my vacation here as best I can. Um, Wild Problems, A Guide to the Decisions that Define Us. Russ Roberts, welcome back to The Remnant. Great to be with you, Jenna. Um, and I never brag about all of my accomplishments and awards, in part because I have so few, uh, but <laughs> one of the proudest moments in my life in the egghead world was that I was voted the fan favorite podcast on in Egon Talk a few years ago for the conversation that we did about my book. So that was a that 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 tickled me in ways that f- most most things leave my dead soul unmoved. So thank you for that. Thank my listeners. Let's my favorite question to ask authors, uh, as as listeners know, um, uh, is what's your book about? <laughs> so what's your book about? So on the surface, my book's about how to make decisions, but it's actually a book about how to live. And it's a conversation that I have with the reader about what is the life well lived? What does it mean to flourish? And suggesting that thinking about that, those questions is a good idea and coming to some understanding of yourself and what matters to you is a way to help you make decisions in life that otherwise you can't really make rationally. So the book deals with decisions like whether to have children, whether to marry, where, what kind of career to pursue, how, what kind of friend you should be. These are um, the decisions that define us. They determine who we are and how we spend our days. They affect who we are and who we will have the chance to become. 
And since that latter point is not unimportant, that who we will become, I suggest if you want to think about those questions rationally, since there's very little evidence or data to help you think about them, you need another way to organize your thinking and organizing that thinking about how you are going to define yourself, who you are going to be, how you want to aspire in the future uh, is my suggestion for how to think about it. I hope this isn't too personal a question, but it feels like you're a recovering economist um, yes. in a lot of ways. Um, mm -hmm. uh, I mean, the, the, I, I think in retrospect, some Robertsologists would say they could see this coming with the Adam Smith book. <laughs> um, because the Adam Smith book, you know, which was uh, How Adam Smith Can Change Your Life or How Reading Correct. Adam Smith Can Change Your Life. No, yeah. How age, yeah. And um, was basically all about how the caricature that you have in your mind of Adam Smith is wrong, that Adam Smith actually was a moral philosopher as much as he was an economist. And after years of listening to you, it feels like that this is, you are trying to jettison the carapace of, of of being an economist in favor of being, I don't, moral philosopher is probably too grand for you to accept, but um, you know someone who focuses more about character than about about numbers is it, it, what what is if I if I've got that right why has that been so what has driven you on this path? Well, when you asked you said you were going to ask me a personal question, I thought you were going to ask me about my marriage. Uh, so I'm relieved. <laughs> we're saving that for later. Uh, great, but clearly. Being an economist and um, most of my life was very central to who I was and who I who I was in the past. And you're absolutely right that in many senses, in many sense, senses, I've, I've, I've um, shed my cocoon, come out of the cocoon, and I'm hoping to emerge as a butterfly. First, I, let me try to say what, what that means to me, and then I'll try to answer your question as to as to why that that's happened. I still think economics is a very useful uh, and powerful way of organizing one's thinking about the world, but I've become more interested in recent years in its limitations. And in particular, in this case, in terms of decision-making, economists encourage you to, to think about what we would, we would call as economists expected utility, my well-being that I might think will follow from this decision. So you know, the book opens with early on with Charles Darwin at the age of 29, trying to figure out if he's going to be happily married or not. And so he makes a list of pros and cons. And it's a remarkably sterile and um, uninspiring list because he doesn't know much about what it's like to be married. Not surprising. <laughs> uh, he's a single man with probably some married friends, but they probably don't like to talk about their marriages. Most people don't. And uh, if they could talk about them, they probably wouldn't speak very eloquently about them. So most of what he sees when he looks around the world and what it might be like to say be married and have children are the downsides, the negatives. Uh, and he makes quite a, a long list that, you know, I suggest if, if he had been, quote, rational and had followed his contemplative, uh, cold light of day, unemotional, rational, scientific self, he wouldn't have gotten married. And yet a few months, within a year, he was married. Uh, to his cousin, interestingly enough. Um, so what's missing? Why do, would an economist lead you astray if, if you were Charles Darwin? And part of the answer is, like I said, he has imperfect information. Okay, fine. But the deeper point is that he doesn't really have much of a handle on 
the deep questions that are at stake when you're trying to decide what to do with your life. Is it going to have meaning? Is it going to have purpose? What about a shared experience with another human being? Uh, economics doesn't have so much to say about those things. You can cram those things into the models of economics, but they don't fit very well. And my real point is that if you're not careful by focusing on what you can measure and what you can observe and what you think you know, you'll be misled into thinking you're making a rational decision when, in fact, you're quite in the dark. Uh, and so what my book is partly about is getting us to see how much we're in the dark about these kind of decisions and then asking, well, if we're in the dark, how do we make a decision? Because dark is scary. We like the light. We like where we understand things well, and we like knowing what we're going to be getting ourselves into. But that just means we're likely to make a mistake by making a decision of not doing something. Um, of course, marriage and children aren't for everyone. Uh, Franz Kafka uh, discussed him in the book. Uh, you know, he decided it was not the right thing for him, and that's very that very well may have been the case. But the point is, is that you have to be aware of your own limitations. Now, economists understand this. It's just that the calculus of economics, the tools of economics, tools of rationality and analytical thinking more generally, uh, often fool us into thinking we're making a more rational decision than we actually are. And that's that's the sense in which I've lost some of my romance about, about economics and, and feel very strongly that in many ways it leaves out what's most important um, I have an essay on this on me at Medium, where I talk about the minimum wage. When economists debate the minimum wage, what do they talk about? They talk about how many jobs are going to be lost or not lost, depending on which side of the debate you're on. That's a very important thing. Uh, and we can count them pretty well. Not great, not perfectly. So it's not unsurprising that that's what economists look at. They look at something you can count. Uh, dignity is harder to count. So if people lose their jobs because of the minimum wage, because they're not skilled or productive enough to merit the wage that is now the legal minimum, uh, those people lose dignity, can't support themselves, can't support their families. How does that fit into the calculus? Um, well, it doesn't. And so we tend to ignore it. Uh, what about the skills that you might have gotten on the job that are no longer provided because the minimum wage makes that unprofitable for the employer? So the ability of a, of a person of low skill to rise in the workforce is now gone. How do you calculate that? Well, again, you could imaginably calculate it, but it tends to get ignored. So these are kind of things that I think economists are prone to, to misunderstand and, and to, to leave out. Now, there are great economists who didn't misunderstand those things, who don't leave them out. But even the best economists, I think, would struggle to uh, think analytically about whether they should get married or not. Um, so that, that's the sense in which I've, I've become less enamored of what is measurable and more interested in the things that, you know, meaning, purpose, and other issues from philosophical terms that you're correct. I, I think of, about moral philosophy a lot more these days than I used to. Look, it's a, it's, it's a great and it's a really interesting book. It's also, it feels intuitively very much, you know, I don't, I, I don't want to make it like a pool of narcissists, but like I, I, I think this way about the decisions I've made in my life. I don't, I've never been like a pure rational calculator about this stuff because, you know, and I just, I just talked about this on the podcast last week about how my advice to young people is often it's okay to take a job that you end up not liking or take a job that you like a lot in the beginning. And then you say, okay, this is no longer for me. That's not wasted time because 
having the experience of something makes you uh, make better decisions about new experiences, right? And and I've I've often argued that like it took me a long time to realize that I should not make any decisions based on fear alone, right? You should you should listen to your fear because sometimes fear is telling you something really important, like sharks are dangerous. <laughs> but like uh, the fear itself is just simply a warning to say, think more deeply about this. And that's the way I've always sort of thought about it. I guess, so I, I agree with a lot of what's in the book. I guess part of my problem is that I'm wondering how many people are actually making decisions about how to get married. I mean, look, Darwin was a bit of a freak. I think we can put it that way. How many people are actually making decisions about getting married with a rational, you know, pro-con list and that kind of thing? Do you think it's, I think it's kind of weirdly common about career stuff with young people, but I don't know if it's that common with, 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 most normal people that they think of it in those terms. Am I, am, am I hopelessly naive? Well, the book opens, the very first paragraph of the book is about a conversation I had with a friend who he and his wife were trying to decide whether they have children. They made a pro-con list and they couldn't decide what to do. That's a true story. Many people who I think consider themselves part of what is now sometimes called the rationalist or the rational community would like to use whatever tools are available. They, they certainly understand they're not perfect. But they would like to use whatever the best data available or whatever they can get access to and so on. So, but I agree with you. I don't think most people literally make decisions that way. But regardless of whether they do or not, it, it comes to the question now of now what? Okay, you might agree with me that this is the wrong way to make a decision. If you're part of the rationalist community or you see yourself as a, a thoughtful person, how should you think about these things? So that's the second half of the book. The first half of the book is saying you have a natural impulse, and I do think this is true, to look for certainty and to mm -hmm. look for algorithms and data that will help you navigate the uh, uncertainties of life. We do this all the time. And in many areas of our life, we have wonderful tools to help us. Uh, Waze helps us get to where we want to go or Google Maps, but they don't say why they should go there in the first place. But they will say the, the way to get there the, the quickest way. And, and we, we love that. We absolutely, I absolutely love that. And we are eager to do that with lots of parts of our life. And I think it's important to remember that it doesn't work with all parts of our life. Uh, most of us do understand that, but that doesn't solve the queasy uneasiness we have uh, that, as you ex is, had just mentioned, that we might make a mistake. We might, now, how can I do, how can I do this the best I can? Sure, I can't do it perfectly. How do I marry the best person, given that I can't meet every single human being? And I think that's a very common impulse. And I think in among young people today, you talk about career choice or job choice. And I give often give that same advice to people. Yeah, try a job. If you don't like it, you can quit. It's okay. Uh, if, if, you, if you go to law school and you hate it, which many do, don't become a lawyer. Nothing shameful there. It's okay to do something different. I think part of this is is part of a um, a planning urge that is we often encourage in our culture. Don't just sit around and see what happens. Have a plan. Now, your plan will be hard to realize because life will intervene, but it's better to have a plan than no plan at all. 
And there's some truth to that, of course. Not suggest you should sit around um, in a coffee shop and wait for life to happen to you. That's not the message of the book. But what is the message? One of the messages of the book is that if you think you're going to plan your life and that way you'll get the best outcomes, you're you're fooling yourself because that is not necessarily for every person. It's true for a few, but for most people, that's not the right way to think about how life unfurls its flag. It is a very different uh, experience that involves a lot of learning along the way and lots of mistakes. Mistakes are unpleasant. Regret is uh, scares us. The, the, the specter of regret. And I think part of what I'm saying in this book is that uh, you're going to make a lot of mistakes. Don't, I shouldn't even think about those mistakes. You don't have good information. Mistakes come when you, you have information, you misinterpret it, or you have information and you ignore it. That's a mistake. <laughs> it's not a mistake when you have no idea what you're doing. That can't be a mistake by definition. But we often see our mistakes, our past errors, and again, I think those are the wrong words, our past choices as mistakes or as errors when they should be seen, as you, as you suggested, as a chance to learn something about ourselves. And I think that's, uh, that intimidates us, that fear you were talking about. We think about prospectively about decisions, uh, paralyzes us very understandably. And the default is to wait. Yeah, I get more information. I need, and we convince ourselves we're we're doing this in the name of making a better decision when, in fact, I think we're just procrastinating. Why don't you, for the benefit of the listeners, explain uh, the vampire problem or the vampire phenomenon that, that I think you got from, what's her last name, Paul? L.A. Paul, L.A. Paul, L.A. Paul, a philosopher at Yale. She wrote a beautiful book. Um, it's called Transformative Experiences. If I remember correctly, interviewed her on Econ Talk, very thought-provoking book. And she uses the analogy of a vampire. Should you become a vampire? Well, kind of creepy. Uh, in the in in the uh, in as we as you look ahead, it doesn't seem like the best choice. But you know, when you talk to vampires, they're all, most of them are really happy. They're really glad they made the choice. So, how should you think about that in whether you should become one? And and her claim is that, and I think basically correct, is that you can't make a rational decision there because Who's the decision maker? Is it the pre-vampire you who looks on vampireness with disgust, or is it the post-vampire you who looks on your human mortal uh, remains as uh, despicably cautious and uh, uninteresting? Uh, so that's one way to think about these kind of choices, especially the ones that have that are irre- irreversible or, or very costly uh, to change. And um, should you become a vampire? How do you think about it? Now, I suggested in the book that you should actually maybe use some morality. Uh, it doesn't literally solve the problem because you could argue that the post you, the post vampire you, will will sneer at, at the morality that uh, you once had. But but I think it it does suggest a way to deal with the uncertainty and the darkness, meaning the uh, un, unknown aspect of all these kind of decisions. What, what's shocking about all of these, by the way? and this is why it applies to things other than just being a vampire, is that once you get married and once you have children and once you move to Israel or do (laughs) any set of these things, you aren't the same person anymore. And what you care about isn't just, it's not just that you now have different experiences that you might like or not like. The person experiencing those things is not the same person. And that is, I think, a deep, 
uh, aspect of, of, of the human experience that you should be aware of as you embark on these, on these journeys. Um, a friend of mine, uh, I don't think this made it into the book, a friend of mine, his father told him that until you get married, you're an idiot. Uh, that's a wise man. Uh, <laughs> that, 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 I, I see a lot of wisdom in that statement. Uh, once you have children, you, you care about many, many different things than you didn't care about before. And you also, as I quote in the book, um, I think it's Elizabeth Stone, to have a child is to walk around with your heart outside your body for the rest of your life. It, it, there's a certain vulnerability there. These choices change us. Uh, you know, and I talk about whether you should have children or not, and I certainly don't have any, um, I don't want to suggest that having children is a no-brainer. It's not a no-brainer, and certainly is a choice variable in many ways today that it was not in the past. But one argument for it, for having children, is it's, it's part of the human experience. It ties you to your parents. It, but it's not a utilitarian pro-con kind of argument, like it's more fun than, than not having children. It might be less fun. But a life with children, in many ways, for many parents, is a meaningful life. And that, and that calculus is hard to integrate with the pros and cons of the hampered vacation, the less exciting car you're able to drive, the restrictions on your income, and the heartbreak that inevitably comes when, when children, uh, things happen to your children. And so it's, it's, it's not a day at the park, at the amusement park, or, um, and it's not ice cream all around. But it's something that many people who have children are glad they've done it. So uh, it's not straightforward to think about that in the usual utilitarian way. Yeah, I always tell people that having kids is that all the all the cliches about parenthood are true, including the ones that contradict each other. So it is the most, particularly when they're very young, it's one of the most gross, sticky, uh, messy inconvenient, uh, anxiety and dread inducing, stress inducing things you can possibly do. And it's totally worth it. Right. <laughs> and, and, and I agree entirely, like the idea of trying to come up with a, a rational cost benefit analysis is, is kind of a sign that maybe you're not ready to be a parent. <laughs> um, yeah, maybe, but then again, no one's ever ready to be a parent, which is sort of one yeah. of the points of the book, right? Is that it's yeah. a, you come out the other side when you have a kid, um, a completely different, not a completely different person. Your your old self is recognizable, but it's you're changed. You're, you're fundamentally changed, and and you're 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 other directed in a way that you're not even when you're married, you know, and you're not when you have sub even or, or when you have a sibling, right? Because like siblings, there's rivalries and all these kinds of things. When you have a kid, you. Like I had never really experienced the feeling until my daughter was sick as a baby of wanting to suffer so completely as a replacement for their suffering. And that's a, that's a really transformative experience. Yeah. That's a great example. I think, yeah. What did you call it? The other, other directed, right. Other directed or yeah. Other centric. Yeah. That's one of the most uh, powerful parts of it. And of course the good thing about it is for me, isn't, Wow, that's a novel thing. <laughs> the good thing about it is it forces you to grow as a human being. Uh, and that's a, you know, a strong theme in the book is that you should think about that. You think about who you might want to become, even if you're not that person now. So I, I would suggest that 
one of the advantages of having children, there's plenty of joys, by the way, I think we should say, we should both concede that. Um, There's plenty of joys, but one of the things that child, that parenting and marriage do for you is to let you step outside yourself. And um, uh, that's really hard to do. Uh, It doesn't, we're not hardwired that way. We're hardwired to put ourselves first. Uh, Self-interest, I think, is the essence of 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 our um, of our nature, not selfishness, but self interestedness. We're self interested, not selfish. Uh, some of us are selfish too, but but I think we are hardwired to be self interested, and and the power of this particular uh, set of choices is to rock your world. Now, other things can do that. It's important to to mention that uh, volunteering for or working for a cause you're passionate about, friendship. A lot of people are able to invest in friendship. And by the way, uh, marriage and children make it much harder to invest in friendship. So um, some of my non-married friends are my best friends, and they're better at friendship than I am, uh, and they're better at our friendship than I am because they they don't have a spouse or children. So th- this is not the only way to get outside yourself. Religion is another way to do it. Uh, there are many ways to explore uh, a world where you are not at its center. And I think that's a really a wonderful thing. That, that's what I would uh, encourage people to think about. And there are many ways to get there from here. I have this bugaboo that I finally wrote about recently that um, I'm curious what you think about it. I increasingly, I think I've always had that. I think this is one of the reasons why I always called myself a conservative, but more and more, I'm, I get more exasperated with the whole idea of new ideas. There is the, particularly in academia, there is this fetishization of theory of coming up with a new explanation for why people do things. Um, you know, uh, we could probably have a long conversation about critical race theory, right? Or anti-racism and these kinds of things. And, uh, at the end of the day, the, the reason why I think those, uh, those theories are dangerous isn't because of their underlying assumptions. It's because they're treated as if they're new and therefore you have to come up with new arguments against them, right? If, if you just say, Hey, look, if you're if you're a two thousand year old man, sort of the Mel Brooks two thousand year old man, you say, look, minority groups in various populations have always had complaints and demands for more justice or more resources. Sometimes their demands are utterly defensible and correct, and sometimes they're not. And wisdom lies in figuring out how to adjudicate that, right? And the same thing goes for in economics. So much, I mean, I, I honestly think that, that free market economics are not natural. You know, we talk about this from my book. It is really one of the only new ideas in the last 2,000 years or last 200,000 years is the whole, you know, that whole, which you know far better than I do, the whole sort of Smithian division of labor, you know, uh, Gesellschaft having different rules than the Gemeinschaft, you know, how to deal with strangers. This was like the new, first new idea um, in how to, organize a political economy since we, you know, stood upright. Virtually all of the other ideas about how to organize an economy are very, very, very old. And I, you can put more squiggly lines and Greek letters and numbers in it, 
But at the end of the day, there's corporatism or autocracy or 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 sort of the socialism of 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 the small tribe, um, and the rest of it is just rhetorical adornment. And um, um, and some of it's very clever, but it's really when you strip it of all of its pretense, it's not new. And and I, I think one of the reasons I came to this conclusion is, is listening to your stuff over the years because at the end of the day. You know, the the where you're coming from, this is not a new argument you're making, right? This is about how to be a good person. And moral philosophers have been thinking about this for a very long time. And the material that they're working with hasn't really changed because human nature still has no history to speak of. Is that fair? I first I want to say that I, I wish we were having this conversation on my podcast because I don't <laughs> think I don't think I've ever talked about the 2000 year old man, which <laughs> is unfortunate because it's, it, it's always been one of my favorite routines. I know a lot of it by heart, or at least I think I do. Um, I probably don't get it quite right. Um, I'll just say, uh, I've empathy dummy, but for those listening at home <laughs> who can make a, a reference to Joan of Arc, um, and Saran wrap, but I, you're absolutely right. And there's a there's a, um, a, a a cheap shot that's accurate about books like mine, which is that you could say there's nothing new under the sun. We know all these things already. We know that meaning and purpose ultimately are more important, say, than fun. Having said that, Dan Gilbert, psychologist at Harvard, disagrees with me. <laughs> so it's. Not exactly. Uh, these are not all just cliches that have been put into new clothing. But much of the book, I would argue, is um, is built around some very old ideas about what's important, including principles. I have a, a chapter called Privilege Your Principles, which is about the importance of keeping uh, true to your, to your values. Uh, that that's a good idea. It's a very old one. Uh, I have a chapter on Bill Belichick, which is which the punchline is uh, open yourself to lots of experiences and learn from them. Uh, how that has to do with Bill Belichick is a riddle for the reader to discover. Uh, I have chapters about it's good to be with other people. Friendship is often underrated. These are well known. These are not just known for 2000 years. They're known for since Adam and Eve came out of the garden, however many millennia you want to think that is. So I think, I, think, um, I think it's useful to remember that most knowledge that's important for how to live is pretty well known. The hard part's remembering it. Mm-hmm. The hard, part's, mm-hmm. hard part is using it. Yeah, I think there are many, many things that are true that we know. And yet we fail to live by them. In my Adam Smith book, I think I mentioned when your child offers you your hand, their hand, take it. I don't know if I put that in that book or it's in an essay I wrote. Well, that's kind of obvious, isn't it? I mean, really, where you're not going to take your kid's hand. There are many times in my life as a parent when my kid wanted to hold my hand and I was tired. or And it could be, it could be a, a metaphorical hand-holding, but it also be an actual hand-holding where I just thought, you know, I just kind of need to be by myself right now. And um, 
when I wrote that phrase, it kind of imposed a cost on me of I had to live up to it for my sense of self, not because somebody's going to see me and go, oh, he wrote that essay or that book and doesn't even want to hold his kid's hand, just for me. I talk in that, I think in that book about, you know, when there's a funeral of a, of a friend or a, someone's a loved one, go. It's, all, it's always inconvenient. It's never convenient. Uh, it's, it's tomorrow at 1030. Oh, wait a minute. I've got a meeting at 1030. I'll just say, I, I can't make it. I'll, I'll send flowers. I'll write a card. I'll visit them later. And I say, go. Now, most people understand, I think, that it's a good idea to go to a funeral. They understand it's a good idea to hold a child's hand. The challenge, it, it's a good idea not to put yourself first all the time. It's a good idea to not think of yourself as the star of the show. I have a chapter about that, about you should see yourself as being in an ensemble rather than the, the star of the show. Everybody knows that, but it's hard to live by it. And when you write a book like this, uh, what, what I'm trying to do is embed those things in your bones. Because those things, those kind of truths, that kind of knowledge is so easily pushed aside by the pace of daily life that we need ways to remind ourselves of what's important. And uh, I don't want to suggest that there's nothing interesting or new in my book. It's not the, I hope that's not the case. But there are things in there that we already know. But I'm trying to help you remember them. And I'm trying to help you live by them if they matter to you. And I think that's... Um, uh, let's go back to Adam Smith for a minute. There are a lot of things in Adam Smith and The Wealth of Nations. My book was about his other book, The Theory of Moral Sentiments. But The Wealth of Nations, a lot of those things which we attribute to Smith, they were already known. He didn't invent them. <laughs> they, other people that didn't have no um, glory or fame thought of them. And he just wrote them up really well in ways that resonated with people and were more likely to be read. That skill and that contribution, I think, is underrated. And I hope it's underrated because it's mostly what most of us have to offer. There's not that much new under the sun. Yeah, I, I just want to be clear. Um, I wasn't criticizing. I, I think I it's, yeah, it's an important book and it's an important project. Um, so a lot of my intellectual influences were were neocon guys, right? You know, Irving Kristol, um, uh, Daniel Bell, and Matt Glazer, and all those guys. And I don't think you would call yourself a neoconservative, um, but you could have a perfectly pleasant meal with some of them. And it seems to me that that I have very strong and very nerdy views on the uses and abuses of the term neoconservatism. But for me, the first wave of neocons, it was a sociological and psychological phenomenon more than it was an ideological one. It was these people who had grown up in the language of sociology and the social sciences, that uh, many of them were very far to the left, um, and they had these series of exploding epiphanies um, in response to either the, the New Deal or really the Great Society, right? And they realized the limits of social policy run up against the limits of human nature, and that caused a profound change in them. And I think that that kind of conversation, the kind of conversation that they led is very much the kind of conversation that you do, which is that the vernacular changes, the, pie, the intellectual and, um, um, and ideological pieties of each age are different. The vernacular becomes different. And 
it is an important part of one's sort of duty to the world. You know, I don't want to get into a whole Alam kind of thing, but like it's an important part of uh, of the sort of larger intellectual project of being able to engage where those pieties are at any given moment and say, you know, sort of like whisper, thou art, you know, thou art mortal, um, or basically say, you're never going to get out ahead of the limits of the crooked timber of humanity. And that human beings are human beings. And until we figure out some stuff with CRISPR, we're not going to have them be anything else. And, and so therefore, let's keep these other things in mind, including what are the real sources of happiness? What does it mean to be a good person? Um, what are the real sources of satisfaction and meaning? And there's nothing wrong with coming up with new arguments for those things. In fact, there's a lot that's very right for it because the world, every generation, we come up with these new excuses to ignore that stuff or forget that stuff. And so you need people around who can say, you know, hold your horses. You're, this is the, this is where this is where the action is if you if you care about your soul or life satisfaction or whatever of course every generation there're going to be some of us who are making those arguments and i just wish there were more you know i i think it's a noble and important thing i would just add two things one is i'm more of a conservative than i used to be and less of a libertarian but i'm not even sure why or how i would put that into words um that's just an interesting I've become less interested in labels, which is part of why I'm less of a libertarian. I'm less labelable, less dogmatic. I think it comes with get, with getting older, although maybe that's not true. But I would here's a metaphor for what you're talking about, which is translation. We think about Homer uh, and his uh, great work, The Odyssey. I don't know the Iliad as well, but The Odyssey. Um, it's kind of remarkable how often the Odyssey has been translated. It's written in Greek, not an easy language for most people. Uh, it's not most people's fingertips. Uh, it's long. <laughs> it's not just like a few-page poem. It's really long. Uh, it's old, so it has lots of things in it that you'd think people wouldn't care so much about. So once you translate it into English, you'd think you'd be done. <laughs> and yet... It's been translated into English over and over and over again. Alexander Pope, one of the great poets of, I think, the 18th century, translated into English. Uh, Dryden, I think 17th century, translated into English. When I was a schoolboy, I didn't read the Odyssey, but I had a copy of it at home. And the standard translation was Fitzgerald, uh, a classicist who, um, I think, maybe in the 40s, as I got a little older, the standard translation was Lattimore, Richard Lattimore's. <laughs> and I, I own or have owned a few of those, and you can look at the other ones online. Mm -hmm. They're unreadable. <laughs> <laughs> they do not draw you in. They are not, they don't speak to me. Yeah. Um, there are people who can enjoy that older language that makes it, they feels more authentic, kind of the way that King James Translation yeah. of the Bible has a certain grandeur to it, perhaps, but I don't think that's necessarily true of Pope's translation of the Odyssey. So for my taste, the translation by Fagels, F-A-G-L-E-S, Fagels, is spectacularly great. Now, mm -hmm. it's it's no it's just in English. It's not like he right. 
I'm reading the Czech version and and he improved Fitzgerald's or Lattimore's, but it for whatever reason, syntax, rhythm, rhyme, it speaks to me. And I, I've mentioned this, uh, you know, he I've read that to my children when they were little. It's it's very cinematic, it's fabulous. Uh, you have to explain it a little bit sometimes, but when they were eight, 10, 12 years old, they can read the Odyssey and it, because Fagel's such a fabulous translation. Mm-hmm. I don't even know if it's accurate. I don't, <laughs> even, I don't even know if it's a good translation. And and since Fagel's, Emily Watson has translated it recently uh, to much acclaim. I think there's another new one. Same would be true of, um, except it's not true of Dostoevsky. I still like Constance Garnett's translations. I think they're phenomenal and I don't think they've been improved much, but that's maybe says more about me. But the point is, is that I think the eternal truths um, often have to be expressed in modern language, that to be applied to modern dilemmas uh, for us to appreciate them. We can understand them. We can know those truths, but to uh, feel them in our bones, uh, I think it takes a, an updating and a, and a uh, some kind of transformation. You mentioned uh, privileging our principles. Um, why don't you explain what that is? Um, I feel like we're wandering away from the book a little bit. I want to. Oh, who cares? <laughs> who cares? Book's been out a week already. I'm sick of talking about it, John. I've, I've, heard, you know, I've done a few interviews. I mean, how many? You know, I spent so much time with that book. I, 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 I need to need to get away. Yeah, I, could, I wouldn't mind. So. It's just right, totally. Well, I, I can take us some other directions, but why don't we talk about that first? Privilege we'll talk about it quickly. Okay. Um, no, and that's a good example, actually, of the I think of the imperfection of economics uh, that we started off talking about. I was teaching a class online uh, of high schoolers. The teacher invited me to do a, a Zoom class with about a hundred students taking advanced placement economics at an elite private school in California, and I gave them the following challenge. You find a wallet on the street, and this has actually happened to me, which has just happened to be kind of fun. But you find a wallet on the street, and uh, you pick it up, and you look around, and you realize there's no one looking at you. No one sees you pick it up. Put it in your pocket. You get home, and you realize it's full of cash. Should you keep it, or should you try to track down the owner? And uh, I asked the question, what does economics say you should do? And all these students almost unanimous, maybe unanimously, but overwhelmingly said, we, economics says you should keep the wallet, keep the money. I said, why? And they said, well, because um, you get the benefit, doing a cost-benefit analysis, you get the benefit of the money, whatever you'd buy with it, and there's no cost because there's no shame of people looking down on you for keeping it because they didn't see it. And I said, well, didn't you see yourself? <laughs> didn't you see yourself taking it? Might you not feel some guilt and unease that could offset the pleasure you would get from the goods you would buy? And they, they found that kind of interesting. And I felt that was kind of sad that, that I had to bring that up and that their teachers hadn't encouraged them to think about that. But OK. But then I raised a, an additional question, which I think really illuminates the weaknesses of economics for these kind of ethical decisions. I said, maybe you don't have any conscience. Maybe you have no qualms about keeping the wallet. You just are going to enjoy it. In fact, you feel like a sucker if you tried to find the owner. But I said, couldn't you imagine wanting to become the kind of person who would return a wallet? You're not that person now. You feel no guilt. 
But you might think, you know, I'm not sure that's the right way to be. I'd like to be somebody better than I am now. As Browning said, uh, oh, that a man's reach should exceed his grasp, or what's a heaven for? And I, in the book, I talk about how there was a theme in economics with Frank Knight and James Buchanan that saw aspiration of becoming as part of the economic enterprise, that as human beings, we forge and form and craft who we are. And economics is about more than just, well, you take your preferences or what you care about, and you look at the prices and you try to get the most happiness. And even if you make that happiness richer than just fun, you make it purpose and meaning, the idea that you might change who you become, you might change who you are and become someone better or different is not, doesn't fit so well in the model. So economists tend not to think about it, but it's kind of the most important question. It's like, like really, do you want to stay the 16 year old self you were or the 25 year old self and try to be a better self? I mean, maybe not. It's okay. Not everybody would agree with me, but if you do feel that way, the wallet has a different set of lessons to teach us. So uh, that's what, that's what that that's about. So just return the wallet. It's the right thing to do. It's the right thing to do. And you might be miserable. You might say, gosh, I could have enjoyed that money. You do it anyway. And the clever person is, yeah, that's because the pleasure you get from keeping your principles. I just think that totally misunderstands what is going on in the brain of a person facing that kind of ethical decision. But so I actually searched your book for the phrase homo economicus, and it's not in there, which kind of surprised me given the the argument that you're making. And, you know, the, I always, so homo economicus was a phrase that was coined by Mill's critics to describe, I think unfairly Mill's actual position. And what is wrong? This is where I think you're sort of getting the, um, you know, the, 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 the peanut butter of your moral philosophy into the chocolate of your economics (laughs) Um, in the sense of, um, what is wrong with just simply saying economics tells us we should do this and economics is a limit and, and economics is wrong, right? It, 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 what I mean by that is that the various social sciences and also some of the hard sciences, they're all blind men feeling different parts of the elephant. You know, I come at this stuff from, from a more Chestertonian than a social science you know, position, you know, and Chesterton says the purely rational, you know, soldier will not fight, the purely rational man will not marry, you know, and all that. And, um, and so my view is like, if I have, if I, let's say I have to make a business decision in my new business and I'll ask an accountant what they think. And I don't want the accountant to say stuff outside of their expertise. I just, I'm going to go into it knowing that the accountant's opinion is not going to be dispositive necessarily, right? It's going to inform my decision, but like, I don't live by accounting. Similarly, I think the problem with a lot of the economists that you've spent your life with is they want economics to be more than simply economics, when in reality, it is one tool that is very useful in economic situations or to answer economic questions or deal with economic models. But it's, and it's sort of like I always tell people the reason I'm a conservative is because conservatism is only a partial philosophy of life. It does not have answers for all sorts of questions. And that's fine. Um, same thing with economists is like, 
Thank you very much for your opinion about what the economic, the 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 utility maximizing thing here would be in a two-dimensional chart. That's interesting that I'm going to factor it into my decisions, but life is bigger than what economics alone tells us. And um, it seems to me that there's just a lot of economists out there. This is one of the big problems with economists these days is they also want to be social psychologists and, and politicians and political advisors and economics is fantastic for dealing with the things that economics is fantastic for dealing with in the same way that a fork is great for some things, but it's terrible for eating soup with. Um, and, um, and I just think that this is part of the, the sort of imperialism of a lot of the social sciences that think that they can answer every question when that's not what these specialties are for. Well, one of the advantages of being trained as an economist is you learn that incentives matter. And the incentives all drive social scientists to pretend that every work they have can be used with soup and can bake a great loaf of bread with it. And it's a it's a Swiss Army knife, Swiss Army fork. <laughs> you can do anything with it. Um, so I went to the University of Chicago. One of my advisors uh, was George Stigler. He said there is only one social science, and we are its practitioners. <laughs> It's pretty imperialistic, right? Mm-hmm, that's, mm-hmm. That, so I was trained to think that. Uh, the chair of my dissertation committee was Gary Becker, who got a Nobel Prize for, ironically or not, writing on things like the economics of the family. And by the economics of the family, he didn't mean the budget and how they shopped. He meant how people decided whether to have children, how whether to get married, and everything can be fit into the toolkit of utility maximization because utility is an empty term. It just means whatever you like. So whatever you like, Jonah, use economics to figure out how to get there from here. And it's not a it's not the worst thing um, as long as you know its its limitations. But I think it's more of a mindset than a misused tool. I, I, economics is about Many people would tell you that economics is about optimization under constraints, mm-hmm. doing the best you can given that you can't have everything you want. And surely that is the nature of life. You can't have everything you want. You don't have infinite income or infinite time. So what economics is, is the science of choice. It's the science of decisions. It's the science of trade-offs. And um, there's a lot to be said for that even outside of financial decision-making that, that you're suggesting should be the purview of economics. The problem is, for me, and it's kind of a subtle problem, and, and I don't like most of the critics of economics. I think, like, I understand what's wrong with economics. You don't. <laughs> it's kind of a natural, unfortunate uh, thought I have sometimes. The problem with economics is that optimization is the problem. It's not that you can't squeeze everything into the framework of utility maximization. It's the maximization itself. It's the idea that you have a finite life and the goal of life is to accumulate the most uh, utils, the most pleasures relative to pain. And of course, in some sense, that is all there is. It's not a bad starting place to, to seek out things you like and avoid things you don't. It seems kind of uninterestingly tr- and, and true, uninteresting and true. The problem is, is that 
I think, and you don't, this is not just an economist problem, it's a modern problem. When you get focused on productivity hacks and multitasking and, uh, you know, how, how can I best use this, this, this afternoon with my um, uh, tasks and the app that I use for getting things done, GTD, uh, that mindset comes at a cost and it's hard to notice that. So I'm not suggesting actually there's anything deeply inherently wrong with the idea behind the economic way of thinking. I think the problem is when you try to use it as a tool, it misleads. Uh, in theory, a good economist, I'll give you one more example. Uh, I write about this in a, in a recent essay, did make it into the book. I cut this out of the book, but you know, there's a, there's a famous paper in economics that says that Christmas is inefficient that buying people presents is inefficient. It's the same idea that you could, you, I'll, I'll make a simpler version. When somebody invites you for dinner, don't bring them a bottle of wine. Give them a $20 bill. <laughs> because a $20 bill is so much better than wine. If they want the wine, if their best use of that $20 to them is the wine, they can do that. But the wine is restricted to that. If I give you the $20 bill, you can now buy something else you'd like even more than the wine. So it's inefficient for me to bring you a, a bottle of wine. That's a fundamental misunderstanding of the human experience. Now, when I say that, the only people who get defensive are economists. Everybody else goes, <laughs> well, of course it's a stupid idea. Right. The problem is, is that that mindset of a very narrow focus on costs and benefits which again, a good economist understands, well, but that doesn't capture the effort you made to find them something that they would like. It doesn't capture the norm. It doesn't affirm the norm that when you come to someone's house for dinner, the wine is part of the dinner and it somehow adds something that the $20 bill cannot. A good economist understands that, but a bad economist doesn't. And, and a person who's not an economist doesn't if they start using that mindset for thinking about how to get the most out of life. The whole idea, and I said this in my Adam Smith book, I, I preach the virtues of this mindset of getting the most out of life. I think that was a mistake. That's not the goal to get the most out of life. I'll say it a different way and then I'll I'll let you talk. But the, there's a there's a wonderful quote from uh, George Merck, who was the founder of the pharmaceutical company. He says, we always focus on, the, this is almost verbatim, but it's not quite. We always focus on the patient, not the profit. And the more we focus on the patient, the bigger the profit. <laughs> so so the, the goal is to make profit. But if you think of that as the goal, you're not going to do as well as if you think of it being about the patient. So it requires a certain jujitsu, a certain mind game to play with yourself. And that's all I'm really saying about economics if you think of life as being about it as a calculus problem, how can I get the most out of life? Not really inherent in theory, that's probably okay. But often you'll misuse it. You'll misuse that tool. And, and that's really what I'm saying. One of those neocon guys that was a big influence on me was Seymour Martin Lipset, who was the he was at one point or another, he was both the president of the American Sociological Association and the American Political Science Association. And he would argue, or he argued, I've heard him. I heard him argue that uh, history is the mother of all social sciences. And um, in part, just because 
history covers all of the con- natural and controlled and experiments of the human condition as the database for an enormous amount of things. And I always think about that. And um, and I, one of the things I like about history, as opposed to any of the specific social sciences, is that it tries to bring in the other all the factors in the psychology of the people, the economic conditions. You know, I mean, and there are specific kinds of history and all that. But as a broad brushstroke, you know, one of the one of the enduring enemies on this podcast, conceptual enemies on this podcast, has always been monocausal explanations of anything. Um, and monocausal thinking about anything, right? Um, um, and this sort of gets into the discussion in your book about like how to, you know, how to decide to get married. Is that the second you reduce any decision to a single factor, you're doing a disservice to the complexity. Of, you know, like no one goes onto a car dealership and says, "I'm going to buy a red car today," right? No one says, um, "I really want to marry a left-handed person." Um, you know, you have to have a lot of variables to make an informed thing. And I think economics speaks loudly to this. But the thing that I, I keep thinking about is, and I've always tried to, within reason, live my life this way, is what will make a good story 10 years or 20 years from now? And the funny thing is, and I think this is true for most people, is that at least half but probably more than half of your favorite stories to tell were about bad things that happened to you <laughs> or challenges that happened to you or why something was difficult. And if you go through your entire life simply looking to avoid difficulty, looking to avoid challenges, looking to avoid hardships, first of all, you're going to fail. Um, but second of all, um, you're going to miss a lot of the most rewarding things that you get out of life, which is like parenting and marriage and all these. These things are hard and they're good because they're hard. It's very well said. Certainly it's true in my life that many of my favorite moments were moments of challenge or um, sometimes moments of failure, but often moments of, of stress, difficulty and avoiding those. Obviously, I believe, as you do, is a mistake. But the economists would say, oh, but that's that's okay. That's in the model because that deeper pleasure you got, I'm taking that into account. <laughs> and my claim is that it's hard to take it into account. That's all. It's true. You know, I, I still think the, the economists is only right in theory and practice not so right. Uh, but certainly, um, you know, I give the example in the book of type one versus type two trips. You know, the type one trip, I, I'm not going to remember correctly, probably, but, you know, the type one trip is everything's fun all the time. And the type two trip is uh, it's it's full of challenges. There's ups and downs. And uh, but when you get back and it's over, you look back on it with deep satisfaction. And many things in life are type two type experiences. Um, it's why people, as Chesterton suggested, become soldiers. Um, there's, there's, there's more than one reason. Uh there's loyalty to it, maybe to your nation, to your buddies, but also uh, to test yourself, to experience something that that you think will ennoble you. It might kill you also, so it's a, it's a mixed bag. Um, but it's um, people do those things, and they're not irrational. I think that's important to say. They're, they're not irrational at all. So I, have, um, I was going to get into a conversation about how dogs are the ultimate 
proof that economic maximization does not factor into all the right decisions because dogs are a pure, I mean, not counting the advantages of my Twitter feed or whatever, basically dogs are just a total loss center, right? <laughs> they contribute zero to the economic uh, output of the family and they are a major drain, both in terms of expense, but also time, you know, that I could be doing other things, but I actually want to switch gears because I know I, we're running up on time here. And so I spent a lot of my days around very smart, very driven young people um, because I'm at the American Enterprise Institute and I started this media company and, um, and I'm, you know, I have interns who are from these Ivy League schools that I can never get into. And, um, and I, in a lot of ways, I see your book as a guide, as it would be a very useful thing for them to read. Um, mm-hmm. because they are probably the cream of America's, um, hyper-rationalist pros and con list meritocracy. Um, and I think they make a lot of mistakes because that's wh- where they come from. Um, but I'm curious, what is the difference between you're, you're in Jerusalem right now. What is the difference between the sort of meritocratic elite in the United States kinds of students and the meritocratic elite kind of students in Israel. Is it the same sort of calculations going on or do the Israeli kids see things differently because of the nature of the society that they're growing up with and it's sort of unique challenges? Well, first of all, obviously I believe in gift giving over giving of gift certificates and cash when possible. So it's obvious for your staff and many of your young friends, <laughs> a, a gift of wild problems, a guide to the decisions that define us is certainly in order. So I, I just want to encourage saw you that coming down yeah. Fifth Avenue. I walked into yeah, that. <laughs> yeah, you gave me the, the biggest softball down the middle of the plate. And it was easy. Uh, Israel's very different than the United States. Our students uh, here, by the way, you mispronounced Shalem College. I'm sorry. So the, the name of the college that where I'm the president, Shalem means whole or complete. It's an aspiration. It's one of the reasons I found it appealing to take this job. But our students are in Israel as a country is quite different from the United States. Um, a lot of people in Israel speak English well. Many of them don't. found that out very early in my stay here as I tried to use my mediocre Hebrew uh, and would then turn to English and they... I wouldn't get very far. But the fact that many Israelis do speak English well, I think I think many Americans tend to think, oh, I, I understand them. They're they're just Israeli. They're 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 educated and they're incredibly innovative. They're involved in a lot of amazing startups. But uh it's a different place, a very different place in the United States. One of the ways it's different is the emphasis on family. There's also uh a searing and universal military service here for young people, most young people here. So all of our students, virtually all of them, are at least 23 when they come. They graduate high school at 18. They take a gap year. They go to the Army for two to three years. They take another gap year where they travel typically. And some are in the Army for five years, officer training. So they come to us, they're 23 to 25 years old, and sometimes a little older. Uh, Many of them are already married. You know, in America, 25 is 
would be young to get married. My students are often married at even younger ages, 22, 23. They have kids. It's not rare among our students that they're, they have a family already. And uh, families in Israel are large. Certainly among the ultra-Orthodox, they're large. That's um, famously the case. People are aware of that. They can have anywhere from 8 to 12 children. Uh, it's not even, not even surprising. Uh, but among the secular Israelis, their families are bigger than they are, say, in the United States, at very similar levels often of income. So there's a total different set of emphasis, a different set of values here. Um, and you know, some of that is, is the Jewish heritage, mm-hmm. not even though it's not observed by lots of Israelis in any ritual way, they still have Jewish tradition and, and that has impact on them. Um, so it's, it's very different. The, there is an immense amount of drive and ambition here that would be comparable to the to the young people you're talking about. And the other part about it that I love, and I don't know if this is a, a fair comparison, but the young people here in Israel are incredibly alive. They have a joy of life and a dynamism that I felt missing sometimes among American elite young people. There's a stress level in America. There's a worry that you won't get to the right rung of the ladder by a certain age and you'll be a failure and you won't get into the right school and you won't get into the right program and you won't get the right degree. And and, and it starts young. Obviously, mm-hmm. it starts um, in, in, in kindergarten in, in New York City. Yeah, uh, you got to get into the right one, or you're gonna your life's ruined. And I don't feel that here. Um, maybe I'm starry eyed. Maybe I'm naive. Um, there's a there's a joy of, and it could be because of the external circumstances, the threats to Israel's security and existence mm-hmm. that are day, part of daily life. I mean, life here is the stresses are different. That's True. one other way to say it. Uh, and I was just I was just in uh, in Australia. I. Uh, a son there, and he and his wife had a had a child, and we went to to greet this this newcomer to to our world. And um, Australia is a fantastic place, but not much happens there. Mm-hmm. Uh, as as somebody said, you know, the headline is uh, "Kangaroo Escapes Sydney Zoo." <laughs> uh, the headline here is it, the newspapers here in Israel are almost the same every day. There's a Threat from Iran, and it's not a small threat. It's an existential threat. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a uh, worry about terrorism. There's a political struggle going on about who's the next election, which is going to be, you know, soon. And, you know, the, the light article in the paper is 11-year-old girl finds uh, Russian, excuse me, 11-year-old girl finds Roman coin in, uh, in Tiberias, proving that, <laughs> I mean, it's it's kind of not serious, but it's kind of important. It's kind of cool. It's got so everything here matters. So the the whole career self actualization thing that I think is the focus of a lot of American young people, and it's very self actualization. It's very uh, personal. It's very self centered. It's not as common here. Yeah, I mean, I, one of the reasons I just ask is Sebastian Younger in his book. Uh, tribe makes this amazing point, which I'd like to see more data on, to be honest, because it's just, it's, it's so remarkable that 
the post-traumatic stress disorder problems in the United States wildly outstrip those in Israel. And part of his theory is, is that Israel is much more all Gemeinschaft, right? It's like everyone surrounds themselves with family and community. Everyone's served, so they have a frame of reference. And and the, the nature of service is much more sort of fundamental, protect me and mine and my family and my society and my people that makes it much easier to transition into civilian life for these people. For, for veterans in ways that America's blindness with choices and the data-driven life and all these kinds of things create more post-traumatic stress. And I think that's a really interesting thing. And um, I may, again, I may have first heard about the, that book by listening to you. I can't remember, but... Um, it's a great you know, book. Yeah, no, Love it's very well book. done. Yeah. All right, Professor Roberts, I could have you on all day. Um, as you know, I'm... A, I'm, I'm, I'm a fan. I think that the, um, the summation of your life's work so far, I think, can be boiled down to, however, to be a mensch, <laughs> which is not such a terrible summation. So, <laughs> oh, that, 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 that's, yeah, I think that's a, that's a good, that's a good summary. I like people say, what's your, what's your one line philosophy? I, I always, most of it in the last 10 years has been, uh, it's complicated. That would be my, <laughs> um, my worldview, but it's complicated, comma, be a mensch, I think is even better. So thank you, John. I'm going to use that. Uh, be a, a mensch, mensch being, the rest, be a mensch, the rest is commentary. Yeah. <laughs> a mensch being a Yiddish word for uh, doing the right thing and yeah. uh, being dependable and um, someone you could you, that people could rely on. Not a bad goal. Right, the book is Wild Problems. Uh, um, I... Highly recommend it to everybody. I will uh, be a mensch and actually buy it for a couple people. And um, you can find all the links and all that stuff in the show notes. And everyone should, if you're not listening to Econ Talk, you're making a terrible mistake. So I'll just leave it at that. Thank you again for coming on. Thanks, John. It was fun as always. Okay, so Professor Roberts, President Roberts, uh, Dr. Roberts has uh, left the studio, and um, I now have to drive about nine hours for a talk I'm giving tomorrow at the Chautauqua Institute, where tragically Salman Rushdie was attacked last week, and uh, um, so that's kind of grim and sad and um, all that, but this conversation was great, and I don't care if people disagree with me, because I love listening to Russ Roberts. He's... um, one of my favorite public intellectuals and um, and one of my favorite economists. You know, I, I do think that this, you know, part of the, other than be a mensch, you know, one of the big takeaways, much like with, with another one of my favorites, Arthur Brooks, is, you know, you live your life so that you have a good eulogy, not that so you have a good resume. And I think that what, what makes Russ interesting is that he is shedding his libertarianism over time as he more and more embraces and, and comes to understand that. I don't mean to be condescending about it because he's much smarter than I am and he knows a lot more than I do, but that's sort of what I was getting at about at the beginning of the conversation is his transformation. And he may not like being called a neoconservative or being labeled at all, but there is a real classical form of neoconservatism in sort of his migration that I just sort of find really enjoyable to pay attention to. So with that, um, thanks everybody for listening, and I will see you next time. EFSHAR, the podcast.
Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW group. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.